0: Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules-Based Disorder here at Colin. And I want to, as always, I want to invite people who are listening to go ahead and join the queue to ask questions, and we'll have a discussion. One of the things I like about this app is being able to, you know, have a conversation with people and talk about issues that are in the news today and talk about other political topics that interest you all. While I'm waiting for people to fill the room, we have a few people now, but while we're waiting, I'm just going to talk about something that happened yesterday. Today is, is May 17th. So what happened on May 16th in Canada, which is just really ridiculous. And it shows the, the level of propaganda that we're being sub- subjected to over Russia and, and, and the new Cold War, how these Western governments have just become so ridiculous in their disinformation and propaganda. The second in command of the Canadian government, Christia Friedland, spoke in Parliament in the House of Commons, and there was a question session, and the members of Parliament were discussing the problem of inflation and high gas prices in Canada. And the, Christia Friedland quite literally said this is not hyperbole, she said, you can't complain about high gas prices in Canada or you're helping Vladimir Putin and China. I mean, it was so ridiculous, it was so infantile and it's it shows the ridiculous level of propaganda that these western governments expect us to to just regurgitate and and take it face value. So what happened was Christia Freeland, who is the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, that makes her the second most powerful person after the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, both of the Liberal Party with a capital L, a better name would be the neoliberal Party. She is also Finance Minister. She's Deputy Foreign Minister, excuse me, Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister. And she was previously Foreign Minister. I mean, she's an extremely powerful figure. So she was in Parliament. And there were questions about high gas prices and a conservative member of parliament was complaining about the high gas prices. And he accused Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of intentionally increasing the price of gas in order to discourage gas use to help protect the environment. Now, that's obviously not what's happening Because it's true that there is inflation around the world, not just in Canada. So the idea that, you know, Justin Trudeau is only, uh, he's uniquely raising gas prices to protect the environment. No, that's giving him way too much credit. But the response that Christy Friedland gave was genuinely psychotic. She said, and this is an exact quote, and this is exactly her words, quote, I think everyone in this house needs to be mindful of the fact that none of us should be doing Vladimir Putin's work for him. <laughs> and then she continued, quote, That means we all need to recognize the reality and be honest with Canadians about the reality that inflation, including the higher price of fuel, is a global phenomenon. It is being driven by Vladimir Putin's illegal war in Ukraine it is being driven by China's zero COVID policy. Now, this is incredible on so many levels. For, first of all, of course, just trying to blame Putin for everything. I mean, this is this is not new. You know, Putin, my uh, you remember that that dumb meme of thanks, Obama, like the guy with the popcorn whose popcorn falls on the ground. And he's like, thanks, Obama. I mean, this is the same thing with Putin. So, you know, uh, uh something happens in the U S there's a mass shooting. Thanks Putin. Or, uh, there's a car crash. Thanks Putin. And so her attempt to blame Putin for inflation is ridiculous as I'll get to in a second, considering Western governments imposing brutal sanctions on Russia have very heavily contributed contributed to the high levels of inflation. But even aside from that, she also tries to blame China's zero COVID policy, which is absolutely absurd. I mean, this is also this is hilarious because the conservatives in Canada accuse the liberals of all being secretly pro-China, just as Republicans accuse Democrats in the U.S. of being pro-China, which is ridiculous because they all support the new Cold War on China. And they all have been imposing sanctions on China and trying to support secessionist movements in Taiwan and Xinjiang. So her blaming China's zero COVID policy is ridiculous. But the attempt to blame Russia for the high inflation is so cartoonishly absurd. I'm going to quote a few lines from The Washington Post of owned by Jeff Bezos, the 200 billionaire. The Washington Post is, of course, a mouthpiece of U.S. intelligence agencies. Its editorial board is extremely anti-Russia and has so openly supported the sanctions on Russia. But even the Washington Post published an article admitting that, quote, excuse me, admitting that the sanctions, quote, are also exacerbating a political headache for Biden at home, inflation and worries about an economic downturn. And the Washington Post also admitted that, quote, sanctions, especially as they get more extreme, could contribute to higher prices in a variety of areas, such as energy and food products that use wheat. So we all, I mean, anyone who's actually serious knows that the Western sanctions on Russia have made made the inflation crisis, which has, which already, by the way, predated the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, it has continued to make those that inflation crisis even worse. And this Washington Post article also acknowledged that the inflation crisis, which is at a 40-year high in the U.S., began before the February 24th Russian invasion. So Christia Freeland blaming Moscow is just so cynical, and it shows the level of disinformation and propaganda that we're living in right now. But of course, you know, Anyone who knows who who Christy Freeland is, she is the granddaughter of a Ukrainian Nazi collaborator. Her grandfather, Michael Chomiak, was the editor of a fascist anti-Semitic newspaper in in Nazi-occupied Poland. And her grandfather printed that newspaper on a printing press that was stolen from a Jewish publisher who was sent to a Nazi extermination camp where he was killed. I kid you not, that is not hyperbole. Her grandfather was not only a Nazi collaborator, he literally was using a printing press stolen from a Jew killed in a Nazi extermination camp. And Christia Friedland, she knew that for decades, but she claimed that anyone who called her grandfather a Nazi collaborator was engaged in a so-called Russian disinformation campaign, even though, like I said, This is not Russian disinformation. This is an objective historical fact, and she knew it. So it shows how cynical these Western government officials are accusing anyone who says anything they don't like of spreading so-called Russian disinformation and blaming Putin for everything, even though they know that it's not Russia's fault. It's just so cynical, and it shows the level of the disinformation and the information warfare that are what we ourselves are being subjected to by these Western governments in the new Cold War. So I just wanted to begin talking about that because it was just so ridiculous. And I wrote an article about that over at multipolarista.com. I was summarizing that in, in, in the intro here, but now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to respond to questions. So anyone who's listening, please feel free to join the queue. And I'm going to go ahead and take a question now from Maximilian.
1: Hey, Ben, how's it going? Good, good. How about you? Great. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to add on to what you were saying, which is, um, I'm not sure if you know about this, but uh, the Canadian embassy actually served as, you know, basically a base for a neo-Nazi group, uh, S-14. And we basically let them use the Canadian embassy uh, for their operations in the Maidan coup. Additionally, the Canadian government, um, you know, we gave a grant of, I believe, $200,000 to the Kiev Independent, uh, which, you know, it's it's just so ironic that we have our fingers everywhere. And if, if any, if Russia were to do this to Canada, let's say, during the, you know, trucker protest, like, imagine if Russia had given a grant to look I don't know any like Canadian independent uh news company like it would just it'd be shocking you know but we somehow think it's okay to um meddle in these things uh and yeah no just uh, wanted to add to that because I'm in Canada I actually had to read Christian Freeland in uh, my first year of university one of her books so I'm very familiar with the which book was it do you remember it was plutocrats,
0: and this yeah. is the this is the book she wrote that when she was in the '90s, and just like talking about how great the neoliberal shock therapy imposed on the Soviet former Soviet Union was, right?
1: Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, you know, she's talking about the zero point one percent, and you know, basically taking hits at like Russian oligarchs. That's like her enemy number one. Um, yeah, it's.
0: Oh, I just looked it up. So yeah, Pluto, this is her book. It's from 2012 (laughs) plutocrats, the rise of the new global super rich and the fall of everybody else. But she actually wrote another book, Mm -hmm. which was defending. This is it. This is her book. It's from 2000. Mm -hmm. I want to get a copy of this, but it's hard to find. It's called sale of the century, Russia's (laughs) wild, wild ride from communism to capitalism. And she published it in 2000 and this she it's, its a reflection back on her years living in in post-Soviet Russia in the 1990s, and her praising like all the neoliberal shock therapy imposed, and basically arguing from from summaries I read of the book. Basically, her argument is, of course, that it would have it would have gone perfectly. It weren't if it weren't for just those corrupt <laughs> the corrupt Kremlin cronies.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, plutocrats is more in relation to like what she wants to impose on, like, Canadian domestic policy, essentially. But it's it's basically a defense of neoliberal capitalism. Um, and, yeah, no, I just appreciate your work. just wanted to add those couple things there. Uh, yeah, appreciate it.
0: Thanks. No, thanks for calling in. It's always good to... Sorry, I accidentally muted myself because I was trying to <laughs> mute you. Sorry, here we go. Um, it's always good to, to hear from someone from Canada who, who has been following like the the horrible uh nazi apologists in the government because you know there's this narrative first of all from the awful right wing in canada that portrays trudeau and and freeland as like secret crypto socialists which is just cartoonishly absurd because they're they're just textbook neoliberals but also in the u.s there's this idea that canada is such a progressive country and and there's this idea that well I heard a lot of people, a lot of liberals, when Trump was elected, they said, I'm going to move to Canada, which, you know, is so much better. But in reality, I mean, politically, Canada is so similar and increasingly like the U.S. But on the point of C-14, this is this neo-Nazi gang in in, in Ukraine. I, I didn't know about the Canadian embassy's role. That doesn't surprise me at all. But I also wrote an article back in 2018 about how there was an a, a fascist and a so-called activist from C-14, this neo-Nazi gang in Ukraine, who spoke at a U.S. government funded organization in Kiev, which is called America House, which is funded by the U.S. government. It's basically part of the embassy. It's like this kind of cultural arm, the America House in Kiev. And this this C-14 fascist who spoke at the America House he had previously worked with police in Kiev to, to quote, purge Romani. And the language that they used in Ukrainian translated was purge. They usually, they literally use the word purge. C-14 is notorious in, in Ukraine. There are these videos online of them carrying out these racist attacks, like pogroms against Romani communities, the the Roma community. And there are sometimes these like Romani tent communities or like um, they have like these uh, like houses that are like um, they're not like brick houses. They're like kind of like um, with other materials and the Romani, uh, excuse me, the, the neo-Nazi from- forces from the C-14 would just attack and ransack and just break up these communities and kick out the Romanis. And they did this sometimes in collaboration with the police in Kiev Claiming that they were purging and cleaning up the community. And of course, the 14 in the, in the, in the name C-14, the 14 comes from the white supremacist 14 words that is used by neo-Nazis and white supremacists, including the, the terrorist in Buffalo, New York, who just shot up and killed 10 people. This 18-year-old neo-Nazi who used the white, the black sun white supremacist symbol, which is also used by the Azov battalion in Ukraine. He also, in his manifesto, he, he cited that 14-word slogan, which, again, is what the name C-14 is based off of. So, I mean, all of these white supremacist and neo-Nazi and fascist groups in Ukraine, I mean, they are so closely linked to Western governments. And they have been, in some cases, as as this case you mentioned, with the Canadian embassy or at the America House in Kiev, they've been directly supported by Western governments. I mean, not not just Azov. Azov of course gets a lot of attention because it's such an important part of the Ukrainian military and especially now it's really leading the fight against Ukraine against Russia. So Azov does get rightfully get a lot of attention, but there's other Nazi gangs like there's this group Centurion which is, has also been supported by the Canadian government and the US government and also France, Britain and even Germany. And also there's Idar Battalion which is another neo-Nazi neo-fascist group. There's the tornado battalion in Canada. So there are, excuse me, in Ukraine. So there are a lot of Ukrainian Nazis and fascist groups that have gotten Western support. So thanks, Maximilian, for talking about that case. I'm going to bring on Aaron now. Go ahead, Aaron.
2: Uh, Hey, Ben. You can hear me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, oh good. Good. So uh, mostly an observation, but uh, you know, might lead you to answer some questions is uh, I was, was in my thirties uh, during the lead up to the Iraq war and you know, my uh, my friends, my family, my colleagues, you know, all kind of, you know, left-wing advanced degree type New York city types. And um you know, we all came to the consensus fairly early in the in the 2000s that, um, you know, the New York Times was lying to us. And New York Times was, you know, had basically been acting as a mouthpiece for the State Department to accomplish, you know, whatever they wanted to do. And so it's really been it's really been. Um, shocking to me how. Uh, these same people who have acknowledged that in you know their recent past, they they cannot come to the conclusion that perhaps the New York Times is doing the same thing. And I'm just saying New York Times, but you know in general that mainstream media that caters to uh, you know our crowd is doing the same thing. And uh, you know a lot of my friends are you know I live in New York, so uh, I have a lot of I'm Jewish, and a lot of my friends are Jewish, and, and to just and to try to tell people that yeah there is this real significant neo-Nazi element in Ukraine and we're sending them money, uh, but they just can't, like there's just a certain amount of cognitive dissonance uh, that really, um, I feel practically alone. I have a son, you know, who's in, who's, you know, in his twenties, he, 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 he kind of agrees with me, but he said most of, most of his friends also are, are kind of just lapping up the mainstream media uh 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 characterization and it's i i just can't believe it i guess that's what i have to say i i'm, I'm really surprised that it ha you know won't get fooled again <laughs> but it, it, it it's not true we are just constantly getting fooled
0: yeah well great comment aaron uh, i'm just gonna mute you sometimes just because of the extra background noise um yeah, great comment. I mean, it was Gore Vidal who talked about the United States of Amnesia, right? And it's really sad, but there is at least politically the there is a very brief attention span and very brief memory, historical memory of any of these things. So, for a lot of people, even the Iraq War seems so long ago. A lot of the the neocons who were architects of the Iraq War, like Bill Kristol, have all become card-carrying Democrats now, right? So it, the, there's also politically there's a kind of political convenience for many liberals and democrats to kind of forget those years. I mean even Bush has been completely rehabilitated. I remember when Trump was president and so many liberals were praising Bush and saying that you know at least he he w- was never like explicitly as racist as Trump and I mean it's like what planet do you live on looking at the the war on terror and the islamophobic policies and you know I remember there was also an attempt to like to try to portray Bush and his paintings as like, you know, he's this cuddly old, older man now who is, who's forgiven. He's, he can be forgiven for his crimes. And, and he did that thing with Ellen DeGeneres. And I mean, it's so sad to see that's not even ancient history. We're talking about less than 20 years ago, all of that just being completely erased. So it's not that surprising to see, but also I think one of the reasons that, People are just so loath to believe that the U.S. government and other Western governments, not just Washington, could be supporting fascists and white supremacists in, in Ukraine is simply little to no knowledge of actual U.S. foreign policy and history. Because if you think that the U.S., you know, OK, that the Iraq war was a mistake, they often say, right? It was a mis- it was a horrible mistake. But if you don't really know anything about U.S. history and foreign policy, you would say, well, the Iraq war was a mistake, but it was an exception. And usually U.S. foreign policies about democracy and human rights and all that nonsense. If you don't know about the history of Iran-Contra and the CIA supporting these fascist death squads who murdered civilians as intentional strategy, as a form of terrorism, because murdering civilians is effective. I mean, they understood that. If you instill fear into the population, you can control them. If you don't know that history of the CIA partnering with drug dealers and and drug trafficking to fund the Contras in the 1980s and then pumping and then dumping all those drugs in poor, largely black and Latino communities in LA and other parts of the U.S., fueling the crack cocaine epidemic. If you don't know that history, then the idea of the U.S. doing something like that now would just be like a crazy conspiracy. If you don't know about what the U.S. did in the 1990s in the wars in Yugoslavia, in which the U.S. partnered with, when NATO partnered with the KLA, and the KLA was also engaged in drug trafficking, and there were numerous Nazis who were backed by NATO in KLA, including there was this guy in the KLA who, who infamously, he looked a lot like Hitler, and he, he was infamous for, like, making, like, this museum where he would, like, dress up like Hitler. And I believe he was Albanian. Uh, and he was part of the, the, the KLA, backed by NATO. And they called him, like, the Albanian Hitler. So, I mean, th- this was actually, by the way, reported in the 1990s. And again, just completely down the memory hole. No one knows that history. And then, of course, leading up to the 2000s, and leading up to the Libya war, where the U.S. partnered with, Far right Islamist extremists who ethnically cleansed black, uh, sub, bl- sub, black Libyans, sub-Saharan or Libyans of sub-Saharan African descent, right, with dark skin, they were ethnically cleansed by these NATO-backed fascist Salafi jihadist groups. These gangs. That was even admitted by well, not NATO's support for them, but the fact that they ethnically cleansed black Libyans was even admitted by Amnesty International. There was this gang in Libya called the something like the Group for Purging Black Skin or something. That was the name of it. So, like, and then, of course, that brought slave markets back to Libya. So if people don't know any of that history, and then, of course, finally, leading up to Syria, right, where the CIA was supporting these Salafi jihadist groups And so many people were like, the U.S. is not supporting moderate rebels. The U.S. is supporting al-Qaeda and its allies and rebranded al-Qaeda. And people said, no, they're moderate rebels. They're moderate rebels. It's exactly what's happening in Ukraine now. And that's that's less than 10 years ago. We're talking about between 2011 and really 2018 is when the Arm and Equip CIA program in Syria finally died down. 2018, 2019. So... If people can't even remember what happened five years ago and they refuse to acknowledge what actually happened where U.S. weapons went to ISIS and Al-Qaeda, how are they going to acknowledge what happens today? I mean, it really shows the power of propaganda in the media. It is extremely powerful and people still now believe the myth of moderate rebels in Ukraine. So, like I said, I mean, if we can't convince people what happened 20, 10, five years ago, it's of course going to be very difficult to convince them what's happening now. And I think a lot of people, it's really hard to make that leap where they just acknowledge that they've been lied to their entire lives. It is really hard to break through that. But once you kind of do, I think it's easier from then on, right? Like once you kind of make that that leap and acknowledge that, that so much of foreign policy reporting in particular in the media is just propaganda, then it's easier to see it in other ways. And then you can go back and read the history and go back to the 1980s and see the CIA support for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which led to the rise of Al Qaeda and the Taliban. When, and then when you know that history, it's actually as shocking as it is that the U S and not just the U S also Canada and Germany and France and Britain have supported Nazis in Ukraine it's less surprising when you know that history and you kind of even get desensitized to it, which is another problem in itself. Right? So uh, I'm going to bring on great, great comment and question, Aaron. I'm going to bring on Mike now. Go ahead, Mike. Hey Ben.
3: Uh, I want to pick your brain on a question here, but first I just want to kind of piggyback off what you were saying, um, to Aaron. Aaron, I don't know if you're still listening or not, but I, I was also raised in like a, a Jewish progressive, quote unquote, family. And um, since the start of the special military operation, I've experienced a very similar um, thing that you described. We're like my family, my friends, pretty much everyone I know, despite knowing that we were lied to in Iraq, Afghanistan. Here we are. And they belie- pretty much believe what's written in The New York Times or what's on CNN. But I do also, I, I think what Ben said is super important. Like I I saw my uh, parents this past weekend and finally after four months, I had like a breakthrough in me trying to talk to them about what happened. Like, so I, I asked my dad like a month or two ago to go learn the history of what happened during World War II with the Nazis and Western Ukraine. And so anyway, he went on his own and he did some research and now he realizes what's actually going on. So while it might seem almost impossible at times to break through to folks. Um, I guess I'm trying to say, like, don't be discouraged, because if you can give them the context, like Ben was saying, the historical context, you can make a breakthrough. And once they make that breakthrough, um, you know, it's all downhill from there. So um, Ben, my question to you uh, has to do with something that Nikolai Petrushev said this morning. Uh, He's the security council president of of the Russian Federation. A lot of people say he's like after Putin, perhaps the most important or most powerful person in Russia. And he said, quote, the situation around Russia's special military operation in in Ukraine shows that the neoliberalism of the collective West is evolving right before our eyes into the ideology of neoliberal fascism aimed primarily at eradicating Russia. So, I mean, a lot of people might hear that and say, oh, well, that's kind of hyperbole. But, you know, for those of us who live in the U.S. and are honest with ourselves, I think that we feel like the slide towards fascism has been going on for a long time. Um, It's not just like a recent thing since this special military operation started. It's actually been going on for a long time. So my question is, What do you think the responsibility, or first of all, do you agree with that? Do you think that the U.S. is now teetering towards or at a state of fascism or neoliberal fascism? And if so, what's the responsibility for progressive or socialist countries um, to respond to that? And, And I would say at the bare minimum, it's, you know, you shouldn't publicly denounce what Russia is doing and you shouldn't join the sanctions, But what else, in your view, should countries do to oppose um, fascism at this point uh, or neoliberal fascism? I mean, do you think things like boycott, divest, sanction could be effective or are there other things countries uh, you think countries should be doing?
0: Great, great question and great comments. And I hadn't seen that that statement from Petrushev. And that's. I mean, I like that term, neoliberal fascism. In fact, I've, I've seen people use that before. And I think it's, it, it has, I mean, people might use it in different ways, but I actually think it's, it's a useful term in the sense that if you look at the rise of these new fascistic movements, which are pretty much entirely in the US and Western Europe, but also to a lesser extent, you see in some parts of the Global South, like India is a good example with the BJP party of Narendra Modi. They are fascistic movements, but they also are economically completely neoliberal. And it it also, I like that term because it reflects the fact that fascism is ultimately rooted within capitalism, right? The original classical fascism was an attempt by the European bourgeoisie to use violent far-right authoritarianism to crush socialism because it was a moment of capitalist crisis in which... Socialism was on the rise around the world and there were there were definitely there was the real possibility of socialist revolutions in many parts of Western Europe and fascism, especially Germany, right, which had one of the most advanced working classes, one of the most developed socialist movements with strong labor unions. And and it was a very progressive society before Nazism and Nazism crushed all of that. It destroyed all of that. So I, I think it's it's an interesting comment on neoliberal fascism. I think it also is interesting because it reflects something that I've been talking about in some of these these discussions that we've been having here at Colin and in some of my streams, where rush the Russian Federation, after the overthrow of the Soviet Union, I mean, Putin, when he came in, he was supposed to carry in the path of Boris Yeltsin and continue a lot of these neoliberal policies and try to further integration with the West. And he was seen as a more competent manager of the Russian bourgeoisie, then Boris Yeltsin, who was, of course, an incompetent, corrupt alcoholic. So it it was in 2007 when Putin gave this famous speech at the Munich Security Conference. The fact that he was even invited to the Munich Security Conference reflected, you know, the, the the close interactions between the Western military industrial complex led by the U.S. and Russia. Of course, the Munich Security Conference is closely affiliated with NATO. And Putin gave this famous speech in which he said that, look, the U.S. is seeking gl- to maintain its global hegemony over the planet. He used the term hegemony and he, he didn't name the U.S. specifically, but he said a country. And it was obviously he was referencing the U.S. It's a it's an incredible speech. I would highly recommend people going back to to listening to that 2000 or reading a transcript of the, of the translation of that 2007 Putin speech, because that was really the moment where he, when he broke with the West, and decided to take Russia down an independent path. And since then, Russia, out of necessity, has been moving away from neoliberalism. And I've talked about this as well, that, you know, the Russian economy is certainly capitalist, it's not socialist, but it's not the same as a Western neoliberal economy. In fact, depending on the estimate, there are estimates that vary from 20 to 30, even as much as 50% of Russia's GDP comes from state-owned companies, and that's largely because Russia is still very heavily reliant on export of raw materials, especially fossil fuels, for a huge part of its economy, for of its GDP, and especially of government revenue. And a lot of the the companies that are responsible for the export of those raw materials are state-owned. You know, Gazprom being the most The most important Gazprom is the largest company in Russia. It's the state owned gas giant. But also there are other state owned companies and many of the largest banks in Russia, not all of them, but many of the largest banks are state owned. So the Russian economy out of survival, the the state had to implement a lot of control over the economy just for survival, just so the, the the main commanding heights of the economy wouldn't be sold off to these Western corporations like they were in the nineteen nineties. So so out of it's out of out of the Russian Federation's kind of nationalist policies, not socialist, their nationalist policies, it forced them to implement policies of what is called resource nationalism. It's also very similar in Iran. Iran certainly doesn't have a socialist government, but it has a nationalist government with it and a kind of a kind of uh Liberation theology form of Islam governing it. And that has forced it to implement a lot of resource nationalist policies and state control over the economy. So when you look at Western economies compared to Russia, the Russian economy has significantly more state owned, uh, state owned companies and significantly more state intervention in the economy. Now, it's not a socialist economy because even though there's significant state ownership, it's of course not state, it's not state ownership done on behalf of the working class because, you know, this is, this is a touchy issue because then you could, some people would say, well, if, if state ownership is what makes a country socialist, then Saudi Arabia would be socialist. Obviously, Saudi Arabia is not. Saudi Arabia is basically a, a kind of feudal economy where huge parts of the economy are still state owned but they're state owned by the ruling family so it's not even like a kind of resource nationalist kind of uh nationalist kind of uh develop uh, kind of a form of capitalism that is is for- ruled by the national bourgeoisie instead it's the ruling family which is just feudalism but anyway yeah i mean i think that's an interesting point and i think it's also interesting because if you look at where the far right is on the rise around the world, we see so much propaganda in the Western media claiming that that Russia is like far right and that the far right is on the rise in Russia, when in reality, it's the opposite. The, the far right in Russia has been very uh, repressed by the state. And yes, there is a far right in Russia. It's real. There are small Nazi groups and far right groups, and many of them have been brutally repressed by the Russian government. And Putin has been very clear in speaking out against racist forces, against anti-Semitic forces. And some of the racist and anti-Semitic forces actually portray Putin as like a Jewish puppet. And there was this website, I can't remember what it was called. I think it was Russia, I'll think of it in a second. There was this Russian website that came out hard against Putin, calling him like a Jewish puppet. And Russia Insider, I think is what it was. Russia Insider. And it, it just it became extremely anti-Semitic and fascist and accused Putin of being like a Jewish puppet and all of this. It shows that in the context of Russia, Putin is a centrist. He's not he's not on the far right. There is a far right, and he, and he has actually repressed the far right. But of course, he's also not part of the Communist Party, the Russian Federation, which is the main opposition group, and it's the second largest party in Russia and does very well in the elections. So If you look at where the far right is actually on the rise, it's in the West, in the US and in Western Europe and in Canada. The far right is increasingly powerful. And we see that not only with, you know, Donald Trump and Marine Le Pen and the new People's Party of Canada and Maxine Bernier, but also with all of these Nazis who just carry out constant terrorist attacks. Like we just saw in Buffalo, there's so many mass shootings. And basically the way I see that is like the the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban attacks in in Pakistan. Like Pakistan has basically ever since the 1980s when, you know, the Pakistani intelligence ISI and the CIA in Saudi Arabia supported, you know, the Mujahideen, it led to blowback and all of these like fascist gangs of Saudi jihadists who just like never disarmed, right? Because they got all these guns and they just never disarmed after the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan has since then has had a constant problem for decades of like this low level insurgency that has just constantly been an issue of, of these terrorist attacks carried out by the Pakistani Taliban, which is different from the Afghan Taliban. And basically in the U.S., that's what we have in the U.S. is like this low level insurgency where there's just constant terrorist attacks by neo-Nazi forces. And that's just like seen as normal. So yeah, I think it's an interesting quote, uh, an interesting comment about western neoliberal fascism because again, if you look at a lot of these neo these neo-fascist far-right movements, they're economically completely neoliberal because they're not afraid of a socialist threat, a socialist revolution like the classical fascist movements were. Instead, they they're just all completely neoliberal and in India it's a great example of a far-right movement the BJP that is economically completely neoliberal. And by the way, I just want to briefly point out, because I mentioned something earlier about this Albanian Nazi, I I found what I was referencing. It was an article in The Guardian in 1999. Again, this stuff was, it's been reported in mainstream media. The the article in The Guardian is titled, Hate-Filled Town Where Hitler Gets a Laugh. And it's a report from Kosovo. And the subtitle is, Amin Shinovci... Amin Shinovsky may be eccentric, but he typifies a place where speaking the wrong language can be fatal. And they talk about this guy who, they call him Adolf Hitler's double, and he walks around in the ethnically divided and explosive town in northern Kosovo, and they say that, they call him a clone of Hitler. They say it's as if the nightmarish film The Boys from Brazil has come true, where clones of Hitler are manufactured from cells preserved from the dead Fuhrer. And they say he might be eccentric, but his face uh, symbolizes the continuance of virul- virulent ethnic intolerance. So, anyway, the point is that this guy is like a Hitler supporter who dresses up as Hitler and he lives in Kosovo. And they say that he was a guerrilla with the recently dis- disbanded Kosovo Liberation Army, where he won a reputation as a fierce fighter. Who commanded real respect among the ethnic Albanian locals. So this guy was in a NATO backed f- fighter group. He was an, a significant commander within the KLA, which was backed by NATO. And this dude is a literal Hitler supporter who dresses up like Hitler in Kosovo, which of course the US and Western Europe supported breaking away from Serbia. And they accused Serbia of being the fascist. Meanwhile, This dude who was backed by NATO is a literal Hitler supporter who dresses up like Hitler. And this is reported in the Guardian. And all this stuff is just, it's just memory hold. It's reported in mainstream media and then everyone forgets about it. Like Operation Gladio. Like Operation Paperclip. Like the Reinhardt, the Reinhardt Galen gang in which the CIA took the head of Nazi intelligence on the Eastern Front and brought him into the CIA. And that just, no one even knows that history and all of the Nazi scientists who worked at NASA. I mean, this stuff is just, it's so well-documented, but it's just not known. So thanks for that, that question, Mike. I'm going to go to Ken now. Go ahead, Ken. Hey, Ben. How you doing? All right. Um,
4: so, yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that's really bugged me is um like there's this portrayal of nazis there's this like fixation with nazis in american and uh, history and film and it always bugged me and i never knew like exactly why it bugged me so much but then the more i learned about american history the more it was clear to me why it was bothering me and, and this is not making a comment about you, your subject and you talking about it. But um, I think that like part of this like fixation on Nazis and how evil they are um, is kind of there's some of it coming from like this American chauvinist um, angle where there's like finger pointing. Uh, at Look at this like ultimate evil. We would never do that. We would never be that bad. Look, that that evil is out there and not within us. I mean, if you look at American history, I mean, the the Nazis were actually inspired by American racial law and the cleansing of Native Americans. There's a book called Hitler's Ameri- American Model. Uh, where it talks yeah, it's about, a great I think, book.
0: I highly yeah. recommend everyone to read that. It's so good.
4: And and you, the more yeah. I've learned about, like, the founding fathers, uh, like, in college, it would just bug the fuck out of me, like, how much they were put on pedestals. And the more I found out, like, through Chris Hedges um, and, and other academics talking about how these myths that we've been spoon-fed our whole lives uh, about George Washington and all these founding fathers, like were were just that. I mean, they they were anti-democratic, aristocrats. They wanted to, part of the tension was they wanted to expand and take more Native American land. They wanted to, uh, and the Brits were, were setting up a line, uh, kind of a, a line that they couldn't cross. So they got upset by that. They wanted to keep on practicing slavery. And the British were kind of, there was some rumblings about outlawing it and so like that that was their bread and butter um so there's just so much in internal inconsistency there isn't even consistency even within that given time of like the the philosophy that they were trying to espouse it was all just you know framing uh for the benefit of these aristocrats and i think like once we start uh, cracking the mythology, going far uh, that that far back, um, looking at like how the Spanish American War was started by uh, the, a false flag, uh, the USS I think Maine it was. Um, they wanted to start a fight with Spain, and they and they took. I mean, Spain's colonies. I mean, no, not no excuse for that, but still, they, it just exchanged hands from one colonial imperial power to another, and. I think like there there's this fixation that is just kind of uh, that is so ahistorical. There's there's no critique pointed uh, at at ourselves at our own history. I mean I'm I'm Mexican and just having learned about the Mexican American War and, and how it was uh, so portrayed uh, portrayed the Mexican side as like you know despotic towards the Texans, but the Texans that were moving in. Were invited by Mexico if they learned Spanish, if they stopped practicing practicing slavery, and if they, they became uh, Catholics, because Mexico outlawed uh, slavery in 1820, and they didn't do that. So they—it's just ironic how like these patterns that happen are uh, patterns that people point at today's immigrants and say, "Well, they're coming and they're not assimilating." Um, it, <clears throat> there's just so much mythology that's just shoved down our throats and i think that it's a good it's a good thing to start to point out like with facts all these different uh fallacies that 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 we have in our history books so that we can see that it's been rotten from the beginning it's just been so rotten and i think that'll kind of give people more skepticism in their interpretation of today's events, um, w- without just accepting like all these like horrible, uh, intelligence agencies that have done, yeah, that, that you know, perpetuated uh, programs like Operation Paperclip among many, many others. So.
0: Yeah. Great comments, Ken. I want to thank you. Uh, very good comments. And I agree a hundred percent that You know, this fixation, this obsession with Nazi Germany, I mean, it's very important to study that history. But it also is sometimes done at the expense of studying the other horrific crimes committed by other European colonialist powers. And let's not forget that the Nazis, as you said, were directly inspired by the U.S. settler colonial project of, you know, using concentration camps against indigenous peoples. Uh, Also, uh, Jim Crow laws and the uh we we see that the Nuremberg laws the Nazi race laws were directly modeled after Jim Crow and the, and Nazi Germany also got its ideas from for extermination camps from British colonialism and also German colonialism which is even less discussed German clo- colonialism in southern Africa before the Nazis came to power because Germany was also colonial power so a very important points. I want to thank you for pointing all that out. Um, i also just want to say really quickly, I I apologize to everyone, but, um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I will take everyone who's in the queue here, but, um, I just want to say, please, no one else should join the queue because I have, uh, five more people and, and I kind of have a time limit. So, um, I, but I, am going to take everyone's, I'm going to speak for about 20 more minutes, but I'll take every single question here. Um, because you know, you all been patiently waiting. So, Thank you, Ken, great comment. I'm gonna go ahead now and go to Michael, who's next in the queue. Oh, my bad, one second. All right, go ahead, Michael. You're muted, Michael. Um, my bad, uh, I accidentally made you a speak, oh, I'm sorry. Michael, you go, feel free to join uh, the queue again. I'm sorry about that because I made you a speaker and then, well, I will take your, I will take your question, Michael, if you go back to the caller, the caller queue. But while I'm waiting for him to join, I'll just take Lance here. Sorry about that. Okay, Lance, go ahead.
5: You know, you do great work. Uh, I love, uh, you know, reading you. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Okay, okay, help so thanks. Thanks, yeah, yeah, help me out because, you know, I'm relatively well-informed. I know American history I live really well, and uh, I'm old, so I have a little bit of history knowledge. And I remember kind of watching the 60s on TV, so help me out with this. As you guys have been so the brilliant callers and the kind of piggybacking on the last caller, we've had manufactured consent, to borrow mm-hmm. Chomsky's term. You know, uh, since World War One, they saw how successful it was, and they've used it continually to now in terms of manufacturing consent for war. That's just known. Here's my problem. It seems to me, and I've said this on Savvy's show and on, uh, on with Bree, what happened to, in between the warmongering and the war machine and the military-industrial complex, there used to be real diplomacy. I use the example of Nixon opening up to China, playing China off against Russia during the Cold War. Uh, You know, and so with all of the horrific things that the military industrial complex has done, there was a little bit of diplomacy, you know, worked into the things. Now it looks like we're pushing towards a two front war with China was a staunch ally in World War Two. You know, Russia obviously lost 30 million people. They weren't just like, you know, you know, giving lip service. They put their asses on the line. And that's past history. I get it. But now it seems like we want to provoke Ukraine. We want to provoke China in Taiwan. And it's like, according to what I'm reading, and you can flesh this out in much more detail, according to the deep dive in the Pentagon, where they really look at the truth, you know, red team, blue team stuff, we might not even be able to win any kind of a major war. Look what we did with two third world countries in Afghanistan and Iraq. So it just seems to me like it's all war all the time without even a slightest little bit of diplomacy going on. It's like they want Armageddon, like they want, they're like the wackos that want the rapture. Flesh it out for me, will you school me a little bit and tell me how this is all happening?
0: No, I mean, great point. I agree with you, Lance. And, and they're definitely also just in the just in the average U.S. diplomat, you can see how bad things have gotten. I mean, something as as super seems seemingly superficial as the inability of U.S. diplomats to speak foreign languages. I mean, in my experience in Latin America, listening to U.S. ambassadors try to speak Spanish, it is just hilarious. Like, I've heard, I've heard high schoolers in Spanish level two speak Spanish better than the U.S. ambassadors to like Peru or Bolivia or these other countries. Like it's, it really shows the quality of so-called diplomats in the U.S. And I think that it's reflection of that colonial hubris, right? Because when you're so used to just dominating the world, people become so disinterested in learning about the rest of the world. They think the rest of the world is irrelevant. They treat the rest of the world as irrelevant. And that's clearly reflected in the political priorities. It's reflected also in the academia, uh, in, in, the, in the academic institutions themselves, right? Because what, what produces U.S. diplomats? It's, they go to schools that are, you know, the Kennedy School and these other major schools. And if you look at the people teaching in those schools, they're on, these are the people on Twitter. I mean, we can see them. They're frauds. They're complete, They're complete sophists. These so-called public intellectuals are embarrassingly ignorant. They, they're the people who are on MSNBC and CNN. Like, uh, it, it really shows that, you know, I'm not one of these people that, that has this idea of rosy retrospection, that like the U.S. was so much better in the past. Obviously, you know, I talked about the settler colonial genocide committed against indigenous peoples, slavery, Jim Crow, all of that. But it is definitely true that. Especially as the U.S. has become a society of spectacle, if you will, right? Going back to the idea of Edward Bernays and everything about being marketing and, and eventually that propaganda that is used against people around the world is used against the domestic population. And you can see that very clearly in the extremely superficial understanding of history and politics and the just complete, uh, you know, the, vacuousness of so many of these public intellectuals, a lot of it goes back to the 1990s, right? And the triumph over the Soviet Union and the U.S. victory in the Cold War. And people like Francis Fukuyama, again, talk about fake intellectuals. I mean, The End of History and the Last Man is one of the most cartoonishly ridiculous books that I, I've ever, political books I've ever read. I mean, it sounds like a, a high school or maybe a college freshman's like entrance essay, which is this, with this triumphalism, complete ahistoricity, I mean, it, yeah, I agree with you that it's definitely a reflection of the reality that when you are this empire that doesn't, that feels like it no longer has anyone threatening you, then when we talk about base and superstructure, the superstructure of society, these institutions erode and erode. And then you also throw in decades of neoliberal policies and defunding of education Defunding of social infrastructure in general of any kind of, you know, programs for, you know, uh, the arts and culture. And it, it, you just have the, this decaying, this rot that everything is about short term profit. And then the economy is all based on gambling and everything's based on stock buybacks instead of actual industrial production. And we see that neoliberalism has also fostered, you know, just this kind of suicidal economy that has just rotted society from inside out and the last note i'll say before taking the next caller here which is michael sorry about that michael for accidentally kicking you off there but um the last thing i'll say is that we also should keep in mind that um you know as as the other point other caller mike pointed out that even manufacturing consent goes back before world war one goes back to the spanish american war and to william randolph hearst who was like one of the the robber barons one of the oligarchs in the 19th century and early 20th century, who was a major media mogul, who owned many major newspapers, including New York World. And uh, William Randolph Hearst, he was associated with the idea of so-called yellow journalism, if people remember that, learning about that maybe in in high school or college history classes. And yellow journalism was also very closely associated with reporting on the Spanish-American War. And all of this propaganda. I mean, obviously, again, the Spanish colonial uh, empire was horrible, and the Spanish the people colonized by Spain were subjected to uh, uh, were to horrible conditions, and you know, slavery and genocide and all of this. But it is true that the idea of yellow journalism goes back to the U.S. media making all of these you know outlandish claims about Spain and these fake atrocity stories that were used to justify the U.S. war against Spain, and then, of course, the US, gobb- the U.S. gobbling up the Spanish colonies and taking over Cuba, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico that, that were Spanish colonies. So, I mean, manufacturing consent goes back many hundreds of years, not just to World War One. But yeah, but g- great comment. I'm going to go now to Michael, who I accidentally um, kicked off. So go ahead, Michael. You're up. You're you're muted, Michael. Michael, you're you're muted. I don't know if you can hear me. Um so I sorry, I mean I hate to kick you off, but uh you have to unmute yourself and there's other people waiting, so All right. Well, um, I'm going to move, I'm going to move to Andrew now. Sorry about that. Oh, there we go. You're, there we go. Go ahead, Michael. You unmuted yourself for a second. You're still muted. There you go. I can hear me. Go. I can.
6: Yeah, I, go ahead. Okay. One quick comment. I think, I think a, a lot of left leaning commentators would, uh, uh, do a service by making uh, more reference to the JFK assassination and the overwhelming evidence of CIA and general deep state involvement in the G- JFK assassination and cover up. But beyond that, I, I was curious, I, I, you know, I, I've read about how uh, sanctions can be as deadly as, as warfare in, in terms of trying to uh, coerce uh, better behavior from other nations as a, as sanctions as a foreign policy tool. I was wondering if you think, it seems to me uh, one way, one effective way of getting for the US to get other countries to uh, change their their, be, their behavior would be to target sanctions toward the, the oligarchs who run that nation, just like those oligarchs who run the US. I mean, I, I know it's a, kind of a moot question because the US would, isn't really interested in targeting members of its own uh, elite, financial elite. But it does, it seems like, for example, with Ukraine, uh, the U.S. could, uh, start seizing assets of, uh, you know, the top 20, uh, oligarchs in Russia. And that would not affect the general population in, you know, the rank and file in, uh, Russia. And it seems like that would be more effective. I wonder if you think that's a, uh, a practical way to go.
0: Yeah, great, great question, Mike, uh, Michael here. I'm just going to mute you because there was an echo. Yeah, first of all, on JFK, I mean, I agree with you. There are definitely, I think uh, Oliver Stone has helped a lot to kind to bring more attention to this. I mean, there are so many shady questions that are unanswered and may never be answered. But it's so clear that, you know, the CIA was definitely involved in many ways in the JFK assassination and the fact that the warren commission was overseen by alan dulles himself i mean you know the the leading cia criminal along with gerald ford by the way is is really just cartoonishly ridiculous and shows that, that the warren report was not a serious investigation and you know i'm definitely there are people who are researchers on this who who know infinitely more than I do, all I'll say is that, you know, I I did read the book JFK and the Unspeakable by uh, James Douglas, and there's incredible stuff in there, and it's just objective. I mean, it's just, from open sources, from U.S. government resources, it's very clear that the CIA was involved, and uh, it really shows that the U.S. is not a democracy, that the US, the, the U.S. national security state, which acts on behalf of Wall Street and the capitalist class, will not allow a democratically elected leader who will go against the interests of the capitalist class and of the empire and who will try to pursue peace with socialism. They only want war on socialism. As for, as for your comments about sanctions, I mean, yes and no. The idea of targeted sanctions is what you're getting at, of targeting oligarchs. I mean, that, that sounds nice, but the issue is that the concept of targeted sanctions, one, they're never actually targeted only against oligarchs, right? But also furthermore, we have to understand that the thing about sanctions is it's not just who they target specifically and what in- institutions they target specifically. Because the U.S. government, for instance, going back to 2015, when the Obama administration passed an executive order, declaring Venezuela a, a, quote, extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States, which is absolutely ridiculous, of course. Then the Obama administration imposed targeted sanctions against Venezuelan government officials and other prominent people in Venezuela. But what happened is that, you know, you could say that those were only targeted against individual people. And obviously this is against Venezuela, a country with a socialist government, a progressive government, It's not targeting, you know, capitalist oligarchs. But the issue is that the U.S. always said, well, those are targeted sanctions. But what happens is that when a country is hit by sanctions, what happens is that other businesses and other countries, other governments around the world are afraid of doing business in that country because they know that one, more sanctions are coming down the road. And two, they might get hit with, with what are called secondary sanctions. So what happens is that a lot of businesses and governments become too, they can become overly sensitive and they overcompensate for sanctions. So, I mean, yes, I mean, there is an idea of doing, you know, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, BDS against apartheid Israel. And you, I mean, there is potentially the idea, I guess, of sanctions against imperialist countries. But of course, the US government is never going to do. Sanctions against an imperialist country, you know, like a Western European ally or against itself, of course. And yes, China and Russia have responded to U.S. sanctions proportionately by imposing sanctions on U.S. officials and U.S. companies and things like that in proportionate response to U.S. sanctions. But we have to keep in mind that there's no such thing really as targeted sanctions because if you're, especially if you're a country in the global south that that has a smaller economy and you get, and someone imposes sanctions on you. That means that in the international market, it's going to be a huge disincentive for other businesses and other countries to invest in your country, even if it's not investing in a state, industri- state owned industry. And it creates this ricochet effect, which is exactly what happened in Venezuela. So starting in 2015, these sanctions basically made Venezuela totally toxic to every financial institution and company around the world and they all just withdrew and people stopped investing in venezuela which created a de facto blockade even before trump officially declared the embargo on venezuela in 2019 but yeah also again you know the u.s is not going to impose sanctions on capitalist oligarchs that serve its interests so uh interesting comment but yeah especially about jfk i mean i agree um here's andrew now go ahead andrew
7: Hey, Ben. Hey, everyone. How you doing? Um, Good. Real quick before my actual question or comment is uh, definitely agree with some of the earlier callers and yourself mentioning that the U.S. fixation on Nazi Germany and Nazism, and albeit a very whitewashed version that doesn't mention the fact that Henry Ford, Prescott Bush and others were heavily financing and supporting them, that there was a large U.S. Nazi party that was also um, supporting them. I think it's just a really necessary piece of state propaganda to kind of build the myth of what is American history in people's minds. Um, So I'm glad people mentioned that. What I'm actually wondering is along the lines of, you know, U.S. financiers and and others in Britain and uh, the capitalist Western countries at the time financing the rise of nazi germany and then kind of um having a, a sort of you know they talk about the soviet non-aggression pact but there was a western non-aggression pact hoping the nazis would attack the soviet union and then you see this repeated over and over again like you mentioned in kosovo with you know straight up hitler cosplayers in the um the kosovo liberation army we see this in ukraine um, financing and and backing fascism and then when you look at this rise of extreme right wing ideology and fascism in in the west um in the US particularly do you think that that is like um is kind of a backup tool that's being kept on a on a side burner in case it's needed to put down a you know like the growing union movement in the US or is it all blowback um, and then one little shameless plug is I am going to do a show at uh in about an hour on uh the slight lessening of US sanctions on Cuba and the upcoming summit of the Americas, if anyone's interested. But Ben, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the homegrown fascism. Is it is it really stoked by these same kind of forces as a U.S. you know a domestic tool, or is it kind of accidental blowback?
0: Well, uh, when, when Andrew tell people where they can find your your episode on
7: Cuba. Uh, yeah, I actually just created it on Colin uh, today. I've been wanting to for a little bit, but it's called New Alignment. Um, if you click on my icon. Um, it'll, you'll see it. It's the only show that I have. And, um, I actually am not super savvy on how to share things on here, but you should be able to find it if you find my, uh, my, my icon here. And and yeah, I wanted to talk about like, what are the kind of factors that led to the Biden state department, um, lessening some of these sanctions? What will the effects be? Cause they seem to be pretty, pretty low key, not really super, <laughs> Not really super uh, impactful, but potentially as a propaganda tool, very um, effective for them.
0: Well, great. Um, great comment. Great question, Andrew. Um, so I'll say uh, people should check out a show. Unfortunately, just to tell people I do have a hard stop in in like a 10 to 15 minutes. So I, I'm going to try to take everyone's answers or questions. So I, I apologize. I'm going to answer. Normally, my answers are way too long, but I apologize. I'm going to answer pretty briefly to all these questions. But um, you made an interesting point really briefly about uh, the refusal to acknowledge the historical context around the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which was not an alliance. It was a non-aggression pact. And immediately after the Soviet Union signed it, it spent all of its resources building tanks and weapons, preparing for war with Nazi Germany. But what's never acknowledged is before the Molotov-Ribbentrop um, Ribbentrop Pact is the Munich Agreement in 1938 in which Nazi Germany, France, Britain, and Italy signed an agreement together, which is what allowed Germany to take over the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia. So, I mean, there was so much Western Nazi appeasement, and this also is not to mention the other Western governments that had non-aggression pacts and even alliances with Nazi Germany. And let's not forget that the Axis powers, it was called the Anti-Common Term Pact, between Germany, Italy, fascist Italy and fascist Japan. Their, their alliance was built on anti-communism, the anti-common turn pact. And that's never acknowledged. But really briefly, you raise an interesting point about this idea that's been referred to as the strategy of tension, right? The idea that, you know, some of these fascist groups are allowed to, are cultivated or allowed to exist or supported by the national security state as a check on the left to prevent You know, revolutionary forces, left wing forces for being able to take power. I think we should take this idea very seriously, especially in Western Europe, you know, with the strategy of tension and Operation Gladio in Italy. It's very clear that a lot of these fascist groups that were supported by NATO and the CIA were were being supported also as a way to turn the entire population further to the right to prevent the left from having the possibility of taking power because of course, when people are afraid of their security, they tend to become more conservative, right? So, I mean, there's definitely this kind of alliance of co- convenience, this marriage of convenience where the national security state, you know, it sometimes does have this love hate relationship with these fascist groups. And it sometimes allows them to, to operate because it does allow more discipline, allow them to exercise more discipline over the population. And we definitely see this with the war on terror, right? With a lot of these, you know, Islamist extremist forces that were supported by Western intelligence, but also kind of allowed to operate because they served Western foreign policy interests. But also it's not necessarily a bad thing if every once in a while there's a Western terrorist terrorist attack in the West, because then it means that they can you know, push through ma- more military industrial complex or more uh, contracts that are beneficial to the military industrial complex. They can push through more police state policies and they can help, you know, advance their own power. Of course, they they, they want to balance that. They don't want it to be too out of control. But it definitely there is this kind of marriage of convenience. And I think people do need to study more of the concept of the uh, the strategy of tension, because this idea of the strategy of tension. I mean, it's not like it's just this one time thing that only happened in Italy in the 1970s and 80s. It's, it's a strategy for maintaining power. And I think it's a very real strategy that could still be continuing today. So I'm going to go ahead and jump really briefly here in the next 10 minutes. If you can keep your questions short, please. I'm going to go to Jay now. Go ahead, Jay. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Go ahead. All right, sweet. Um,
8: so just a quick uh, question. Um, so Scott Ritter, I've been f- listening to him, and he's taken a new, I guess, uh, opinion about the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, he says that the $40 billion has gone into Ukraine and is basically shifting how it's, his opinion shifted that it's like denotification, I guess, was going to be, you know, uh, but the $40 billion has, like, I guess, you know, affected the denazification objective. Like, the Donbass is still, he thinks that objective is still going to be good, but the denazification throughout Ukraine, that's going to take a hit from the $40 billion. So I wonder, what's your opinion on that? And then I also have a quick, uh, I just want to ask, like, what was your, uh, um, reason for leaving the gray zone, and uh, are you still on good terms with the gray zone? Uh,
0: I I can't really get into to the gray zone stuff. I'll just say, uh, you know, as I said it originally when I left, that we're going in different political directions. Um, but uh, as for, and I also just want to be respectful to people that I used to work with, and don't want to establish this precedent of just like. Uh, speaking badly about people that I used to work with, but we're definitely going in different political directions. But, um, as for, uh, your question about Ukraine and what Scott Ritter said, yeah, I haven't seen that specifically from Scott Ritter. His analysis is very good. And, and I mean, he's, he's a very good military analyst in particular. I mean, he's got history as work, um, working in naval intelligence and his analysis has been very helpful to me to understand the conflict. I would say that um, I'm not sure if the 40 billion is going to change the, uh, inevitability of a Russian victory in the war, but also I just don't realistically think that denazification can happen in Ukraine. This is a country that has been so thoroughly infiltrated by far right forces ever since the 2014 coup. We need to understand that the, the Western backed coup in 2014 overthrew the elected government of Ukraine, which, yes, was a corrupt government. There is, you know, it's certainly not some kind of, like, leftist model. Viktor Yanukovych was not a great, you know, leader. He was definitely corrupt, but he was also an independent leader. And he was pursuing, to some extent, what was in Ukraine's national interest in balancing Russia against the West in his foreign policy. And since they overthrew the Ukrainian government, the state became so just riddled with extremist fascistic forces And at the same time, it became so eroded by corruption, by neoliberal policies. Ukraine economically only survived because of more and more debt from the IMF. Meanwhile, Ukraine has become the poorest country in all of Europe. There has been a mass exodus, not only of people who fled because of the violence in the Donbass, but also because of a lack of job opportunities, increasing crime. I mean, Ukraine has become a failed state. And now... The billions of dollars flooding in are just going to help. They're going to help prop up these fascist gangs, which are what have kept Ukraine from completely collapsing. So, I mean, what does denazification look like in Ukraine? It would mean uh, completely re- overthrowing the government and creating a new government because these Nazi forces are so thoroughly embedded in the structures of the state, in the police forces. In the military, in the national guard, in the secret police. And how could you have a new government, a new state without just basically doing like what the US did for debathification? And we saw how much of a disaster debathification was in Iraq, right? Like this idea of having a complete denazification of the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian state, I just don't realistically seeing it happening. I mean, it, it, when Russia says they want to denazify, I don't doubt that they're trying to denazify. Obviously it's in Russia's interest to, to exaggerate the influence of Nazism in Ukraine. But at the same time, it is very real that especially not, not within the political apparatus, but within the state security apparatus, which is not elected. We're not, I'm not talking about members of, of the Rada, the parliament. I'm not talking about mayors and politicians within the military police, national guard, Nazi forces are, they're completely overwhelming. So I honestly have no idea how this is going to look in the future. Like I said, Ukraine is is a failed state and it was before Russia invaded. And of course, the U.S. and NATO bear a huge responsibility for turning it into a failed state. It was a corrupt oligarchy in 2014. But when the U.S. and NATO overthrew that elected government, they are responsible for turning it into the failed state it is today. So good question. Um, I'm going to jump now to Owen, the last two here. And again, just really briefly, please, if you can. Go ahead, Owen.
1: Sure thing. Thank you for joining us today, Ben.
2: Uh, My question was about specifically censorship online. And I wanted to ask you, how do you believe that the recent increase of social media censorship will affect the modern resurgence of unions and collective organizing that's happening online?
0: That's a really good question. Thank you, Owen. Um, You know, I do focus a lot on like foreign policy and censorship of people criticizing, you know, US imperialism and wars and the military industrial complex, but you're absolutely right that I think we're gonna see a lot of this technology weaponized also against the resurgent new labor movement in the US. And we already kind of see this clearly with the Amazon Union, which is an incredible victory for the, the labor movement in the U.S. I mean, uh, this is, of course, one of the most powerful corporations on earth. So the fact that, that at least one, sh- one shop floor for now, and this is the beginning, was able to unionize, it's going to be a huge shot of adrenaline into the arm of the U.S. labor movement which is really exciting and I'm happy to see that. Not to mention, you know, we had Striketober last year and there were strikes in tons of different companies. Uh, you know, we saw John Deere and there's been a lot of uh, uh, fast food workers um, who have gone on strike. So it's it's been really cool to see. But at the same time, I think it's gonna be a two-pronged approach. One, we always see attempts at co-option, co-optation. And we saw this clearly with, uh, Chris Smalls was invited to the White House. And I like Chris Smalls. I have confidence in him. I think he's got pretty good politics. I haven't seen him comment a lot on international politics, but I mean, that's fine. I mean, he's involved in the labor struggle in the U.S. But the fact that he was invited by Biden to the White House shows that right up to the top of the U.S. political class, there's already a concerted attempt to try to co opt these figures, just as, you know, anytime there's a mass movement in the U.S., Black Lives Matter, or, you know, the environmental movement, there's always an attempt by big corporations and big foundations and the Democratic Party to try to co-opt leadership. So I think what we're going to see is not only censorship of people criticizing imperialism, but we're going to see censorship of the radical wing of the labor movement, of socialists and communists and anti-imperialists, who, yes, obviously they want more unions and they, they want workers to have more power, but they also wanna situate the US worker struggle in an international struggle against imperialism. We're gonna see censorship and attacks on that that radical wing of the labor movement. And we're gonna see the more liberal wing, people who are more sympathetic to the Democratic Party and who will, yes, they'll defend unions, but they'll also do it within the framework of the Democratic Party. They're gonna be promoted on social media, in mainstream media, by the political class, by the Democratic Party we've seen that for many years and the afl cio which used to be jokingly referred to as the afl cia has a long history of playing that role of of purging the radicals from the labor movement and trying to be much more friendly to imperialism and the democratic party so very good question thank you for pointing that out and finally i have to i have to jump here in in, in a few minutes but i'll um, i'm going to bring on loken here for the last uh, last caller go ahead
9: Hi, thank you. Um, I'll try to be quick, but um, so I'm a Palestinian. So obviously, if you're aware of the events that are happening in Palestine right now, um, I mean, since 1948, but just specifically more like right now. Um, and as you can imagine, obviously, it's a little difficult and stressful to see this like uproar um, in America specifically um, and like kind of just like blind support for Ukraine um, in the sense where, you know, like seeing Ukrainian flags everywhere. I've seen Ukrainian flags flying with the American flag, um, in the cities, things like that. Um, even going shopping, you know, they everyone is asking you, Oh, would you like to donate an extra blah 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 to Ukraine? Things like that. Um, and obviously the double standard is clear, but I guess I kind of just want to ask, like, why do you think that is? I mean, I know media we get is obviously all based on america's interest um and i know the relationship between america and israel is extremely strong so i could understand that aspect of it but i guess i just want to know your opinion of why you know we're so strongly supporting ukraine um like while turning a blind eye to other things that are happening
0: yeah great question and yeah yeah, it's always thank you for bringing up palestine it's always so important to talk about The uprising going on by the Palestinian people right now against apartheid Israel, the massive repression and also the massive repression in Western so-called democracies, specifically in Germany this week. There were large pro-Palestine protests and Germany brutally cracked down. The police were arresting anyone who had a Palestinian flag. They arrested a lot of Palestinians in Germany who are leaders of the, the movement there. And it's incredible seeing this country that, you know, was responsible for the crimes of Nazism now trying to, to punish the Palestinian people and people who support Palestinian liberation as, as a way of trying to prove that it's like moved past Nazism. But in fact, it's still acting very Nazi-esque and it's supporting Nazis in Ukraine. So it's pr- ridiculous. By the way, speaking of Ukraine, apartheid Israel has also armed Nazis in Ukraine. And we know that because there was a great report by the electronic Intifada going back to 2018, back four years ago now, showing that the Azov Battalion, this neo-Nazi group that was incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard after the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine, the Azov Battalion posted videos on its YouTube channel with Israeli Tavor rifles. These are specific rifles that are only produced in Israel. And Israel admitted to arming the Ukrainian National Guard, which meant that it was arming Nazis. And there were actually there actually was a brief campaign by a few mainstream human rights organizations inside apartheid Israel inside 48, including this group B'Tselem, and they had a campaign calling for Israel to stop arming Nazis in Ukraine. And by the way, that has continued since then. Israel has continued sending military support and weapons to Ukraine. And that has ended up in the hands of Nazis. So, uh, you know, these things are all directly related. Of course, why the double standard? I mean, the U.S. has... There's always been this double standard toward apartheid Israel. And, of course, as you pointed out, the U.S. and, and Israel are extremely close allies. Israel is an extension of the U.S. empire. It's basically the 51st U.S. state. And it was cre- Israel, as a project, was created by the British Empire... And then after the U.S. kind of absorbed the British Empire at the end of World War II, it became, especially after 1967 and the occupation of of parts of Egypt and Syria and the West Bank, Israel became like a protectorate of the U.S. So that, of course, explains why there's so little critical media coverage of apartheid Israel, why the media coverage of Israel is just ridiculous. Like, for instance, The New York Times Publishing this insane article saying journalist uh, dies at, 50, at age 51 or whatever, not mentioning that she was shot in the head intentionally by Israeli snipers when she had a helmet on and a, a bulletproof vest that said press on it. So uh, that that propaganda, unfortunately, is not new. But the double standard for Ukraine, I mean, it's because Ukraine right now is serving as an as a U.S. proxy. And this has been acknowledged more and more by U.S. officials and mainstream media that the war in Ukraine is a proxy war, that the U.S. as Defense Secretary under Biden just said, um, Lloyd Austin, who, by the way, is a, is a former board member of Raytheon, Lloyd Austin admitted that, that the U.S. goal in Ukraine is to weaken Russia. And that's why they're spending tens of billions of dollars flooding Ukraine with weapons. Not only is that money, of course, going into the pockets of the military industrial complex, this is tens of billions of dollars for for U.S. and other Western weapons manufacturers. But at the same time, they're also using Ukrainians as cannon fodder to bleed Russia. So anything that they can do to raise more attention to that struggle is a way that they can help weaken Russia. And it's all based on this obsessive idea that the U.S. can overthrow the Russian government, can overthrow Putin, and can install a new puppet like Boris Yeltsin, like in the early 1990s. And Joe Biden himself, actually, he accidentally let the cat out of the bag in a speech in Poland. And he said the U.S. goal is overthrowing the Russian government. It's regime change. So that's why everywhere you look in the U.S., there's this propaganda campaign because they're manufacturing consent, trying to get people to support this war in Ukraine, because this is a war that the U.S. truly thinks can be used to overthrow the Russian government. They truly think that Russia is losing the war and they think that that they can create so much political and economic instability inside Russia that Putin is going to be overthrown in a kind of palace coup internally by the Russian security establishment. So they need to up the propaganda to hyperdrive to the highest levels possible because I honestly think a lot of people in the US government think this is their only opportunity. This is the last and only opportunity to try to overthrow the Russian government. Although, of course, I think that's not going to happen. And in, in, in certainly it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, but that's that's their attitude. And and Biden gave it away with his speech in Poland. So with that said, I want to thank everyone. This was a great chat. I had a really good turnout. He had many great questions, good discussion. This, of course, is going to be available here on call-in after. So people, if they want to, if they missed an earlier part of it or they want to listen to it, definitely check that out. And I will be doing another stream like this, another discussion, live Q and A this week. Today is Tuesday. I'm probably going to do it on Thursday. I do two a week here at Colin. So definitely join me again. Check out on Twitter. I'm going to tweet the link to the other Q and A session that I'm going to do in a few days. And if you weren't able to ask a question today or if you have another question, please definitely join here at Colin. This is my show, Rules-Based Disorder, and I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.